0: Well, hello, I'm Don Braid, columnist for The Herald, here with Chris Varko, columnist with The Herald, and we're planning to rework our old Inside Politics video because we found basically that nobody wanted to watch us but maybe they'll listen to us. And today we start with a couple of really important subjects. The Olympics, for one, the crash of the Olympic bid and some things that are going on in the business world that are they're that even more important, in fact, far more important than what happened in the Olympics. But first, I just want to say on the, on the question of the Olympics and the failure of the bid, I'm really gratified today that the no doesn't crow Uh, There's been very little retribution. Even on Twitter, even among some of the real nasties on Twitter, they just sort of let it go. Uh, You get a sense of the city kind of pulling back together again. You know, it's funny. It it was a big defeat for many interests in the city, but it's not really one of those absolutely crushing, long-lasting divisions because it's not partisan. It doesn't have – people were from all over the map on party loyalty on this thing, and it's not hard to let go of because you don't have your – your party policy, your party beliefs. So how do you see things shaping up for the next little while, Chris? Do you think the city is gonna get unified and get going again, or or are we kind of stuck in a nothing happening rut for the next year, especially economically?
1: I like to think that the glass is more half full than half empty, Don, as it relates to this. Uh, You know, I think that the Olympics in some way has been a bit of a distraction. And I, I don't mean that negatively or positively, but I think it's focused a lot of people's attentions on to trying to win this bid or to oppose this bid but there are some really big fundamental economic questions that are now facing the city. We see it down at City Hall and how to deal with these vacant downtown office towers. We see it in the oil patch and how to deal with these price differentials. We see it with the provincial government, which is facing a huge a hole in their revenue if these wide differentials continue on. So I think there's some really core uh, fundamental issues which need to be addressed. And, and I think maybe this will provide the oxygen in the public space for that to take place. I guess what I'm really curious about, Don, and I I wonder if you could maybe give us your views on what went wrong here, because it did seem like most of the elites, that most of the business community and and
0: much of council was behind this bid for most of it, and yet it still failed. You know, one thing is if you want something not to fail, Don 't have a plebiscite I mean would we have a central library this magnificent new central library would we have that if there was a plebiscite? No way would we have the peace bridge if there's a plebiscite the peace bridge that, that people opposed they'd almost throw themselves in the river to oppose that thing and now it's on the you know the section fronts of the New York Times is an icon of Calgary. it failed because of uh, largely because of a massive um, uh... lack of uh, will and ability and in intergovernmental relations between Ottawa and uh, the Bid- Bidco and between uh, the province and Bidco, there was a tremendous, I got kind of you know, on the inside of this for a couple of days, and I was shocked by how much bad blood and bad feeling and hostility and mistrust there was among the partners, the three partners. The federal government, I think, bears ultimate responsibility for a lot of this, because they were so late in coming up with numbers. They could have done that as far back as last June. So I think there are some very strong practical reasons uh, why people kept getting the wrong messages right up until the very end. like. Kirsty duncan the sports minister comes out and says basically oh the olympics are wonderful we love the olympics apparently she is a big booster but then she said there wouldn't be any extra money for a security incident a big security problem so people are left with the idea that calgary could be bankrupted by by the games and it's false and nobody there, there were several days for ottawa to correct that and they did not do it so there was all kinds of little things like that that left people with a bad taste even so it was only 54%. I mean, that's a, it's a bit good majority for the no side. But you have to think that if things had gone more smoothly, it could very well have passed.
1: Well, and it seems like, at least from the outside, that there was some political. There was a lack of political co- coalescing and leadership at the end of the day to carry the ball across the finish line. Yeah. And as you say, it seemed like a lot of that got caught down into into jurisdictional squabbling and infighting, and that really seemed to undercut much of the messaging.
0: Yeah, and so hard for the mayor to lead the thing when his council ends up voting against it. Like fundamentally, when they took that eight to six vote, that was a majority of council was actually against the thing that they're going to be voting. And Evan Woolley's you know, defection to the no side I thought that, I think he should have resigned from that committee. He should have said, I'm resigning from the, uh, uh, the Council's Olympic Committee at this moment. I do not want to be on this committee because it's not appropriate because I am now against the bid. But instead he expected to be on the There's mayoral ambitions involved here, believe me, as well. But maybe we can move on from that for a minute. But Chris, I want to ask you about some stuff you've been doing that's just really interesting. And it's about this this desire on part of the energy industry, the oil industry, to actually cut production, to drive up prices. And and it seems to be a big matter of dispute. Your columns have explained this very clearly uh, among different sectors of the industry. Can you tell me what's going on here? Sure. Uh, I think most people who watch the energy
1: industry, we understand that it is not a monolith. I think a lot of people like to think of the oil patch as big oil, Mm -hmm. but of course we know that there's big companies, there's small companies, there's service companies, there's producing companies, there's refining companies, and they all often have different interests at play. What you're seeing here is a massive problem for the industry in the fact that there's too much oil being produced out of this province and not enough transportation capacity, primarily pipelines, to get it out of the province in an effective and an efficient way. In other words, you've got a glut, and we're seeing this in oil prices. So oil prices, the benchmark price of oil uh, earlier in the day when I looked was around $55, $56 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate Crude.
0: That's after 12 days of straight decline. It's right?
1: been a precipitous toboggan ride down. Yeah. But take a look at what's going on for oil prices in Alberta. Western Canadian Select, a heavier grade of crude, is selling for $15.69 a barrel. I spent more money going to a movie on the weekend than a, that barrel of oil would have fetched if I had bought it on uh, on the commodity traders. Even light oil, Edmonton Light Par, sold for $21.84 yesterday. That's a $34 discount on light crude. So you've got a huge drop-off, and that's going to impact cash flow levels for producers. But it's also going to impact the royalties and the income taxes being paid to the province of Alberta. So they're getting sideswiped as much or more than anybody else. You
0: know, I saw in your column. Uh, that you said that something like $5 billion in provincial government revenue was at stake here. Is that so?
1: Yes. An investment firm, Peters and Company, said that if the differential, the price discount, in other words, for Western Canadian Select stayed around $40 next year, a barrel, that would cost roughly 4 to $5 billion of lost sort of um, Revenue for the government of Alberta. So this is one year, big, goal, like that in yearly? one year.
0: Well, do you think of what that means to the provincial budget that they're going to be coming up with next spring just before the election, right? I mean, they the kind of suggest that they should do something fast to get the price up. And that's and that's part of the issue here. Is,
1: is pipelines are the obviously the long-term solution here. In the midterm, a rail seems to be where the industry is going in the government. But that leaves the short term, which is the next six to 12 months. So, what does the government do? We've got uh, I guess suggestions from some of the largest producers, inclu- including the largest Canadian Natural Resources, some other large producers like Oil Sands Company, Synovus, Athabasca Oil, uh, you know, Whitecap Resources. Uh, they want to see, basically, the government institute production quotas, pro rationing, curtailing production. You can choose your term, but what they're saying is, if we knocked a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, maybe three hundred thousand barrels a day of production offline for a short period of time, it would allow uh, it would allow the prices to return to normal. It would draw down some of the inventories. Mm-hmm. Now that's a pretty extreme move and on the other side of this remember we talked about the, you know the oil patch being a, a you know a compilation of big and small forces on the other side are refiners who are also producers in some ways and i'm talking about suncore energy i'm talking about imperial oil husky energy yeah. these are big companies and they benefit from lower crude prices because they can buy cheap crude and put it in their refiners make money on the refining margin yeah. they don't want to see this interrupted and they're saying let the market place plays way out. The invisible hand of the market, as Adam Smith said, will rectify this, and we already are seeing some companies like Synovus shut in production. Canadian Natural yeah. as well. But the question is, what does the government do? Do they listen to the producers who want to see, uh, you know, some sort of quota system put in place for a short period of time, or do they listen to the refiners? It's a very tricky predicament for Rachel Notley yeah, and, and her government.
0: The 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 and no Alberta government wants to be fighting with any big powerful sector of the oil industry but interestingly enough the, the Alberta government with delight passed the bill to limit exports to BC and other parts of Canada when it was just a political gesture and we all knew we were all very doubtful they were ever going to use that but they've already developed the kind of legislation you would need to to stop production from leaving if not stop people from producing as much so they've gone there intellectually but now that the it's the, a real economic stakes, it, that may be very hard for them to do because of that big dichotomy in the industry, I take it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And yeah. th- there, this isn't completely unprecedented. We saw this happen, pro-rationing has happened from the 1940s right up until the Klein era of 1987. Yeah. So it's not completely sort of a foreign concept for the governments. And they do have some of those legislative powers still in place to curtail crude production conventional oil production they'd have to change it to include oil sands and bitumen which is really where all the growth has been but you're right for them to take the leap would be basically saying we're going to pick one side of the industry against the other side of the industry and as uh, the environment minister shannon phillips told me today you know they would have to study and look at this carefully because it would be precedent setting my suspicion is the political stakes are way too high and that even though there's a benefit for them in terms of trying to fix the price differential. That the political consequences could be catastrophic if it doesn't play out the way they want it yeah, to work. And th-
0: this is uh, you know th- this is more important than the failure of an Olympic bid. <laughs> That's for sure. Long term, I mean, now here we are. This this we're doing this the day after the uh, within 24 hours of the time the referendum failed, and you already sense that the city's moving on. I think uh, you know there's a what what it's shown is that maybe there's a will for Calgary to get. Going on a big project, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was the arena for the for and with the, the Flames, which would revitalize that whole East Village. I was for the Olympic bid. A lot of people hate me for that forever, I suppose. But I'm also for a Flames arena under the right terms. I think it would be incredible. You can see already what what this amazing stuff that's going on in the East Village with the Central Memorial Library and Studio Bell and all that can do for that area. That that area, Edmonton's had a whack of this kind of stuff in the last ten years. We got a fight back and get some of our own so i say let's get the arena going under terms that citizens of calgary can accept develop that whole east village and maybe we won't give a darn about the olympics until say 2030 who knows (laughs) anyway thanks for listening to the first inside politics we'll be back